Hear the word of the Lord. I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you have seen in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father in heaven, it is for our good, out of the love that you have for us, your children, that you give us your word to speak to your people, to comfort your people to exhort your people. We pray that you would speak to us this morning by the power of your spirit through your word and that we would know you, that we would know the comfort that comes from you, that we might taste of the life that you offer to us. We ask that you would do these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, almost every uh, couple... I've ever talked to, has a hilarious story uh, from their honeymoon. You know, uh, you date for a period of time with somebody and you fall in love with them and you decide to spend your life with a person. And at first you're so enamored with that person, you can never imagine having an argument with them. And uh, and do you guys remember those days? Married people, you remember those days? Um, And then, you know, day one, sometimes night one, bam, all of a sudden, you see a different side of that person. All of a sudden, you can start to imagine how you might get upset with that person that you married. And, you know, you know usually it's, it's, it's the small, silly things, the things that you used to think were cute, now all of a sudden are a little annoying, like the way they chew their food or the way they, you, you learn how they use, you know, a toothpaste bottle, or the middle squeezer, or they squeeze from the bottom, you know, the important things, like what do they do with toilet seats and putting clothing on the ground, all of a sudden, like, all these little things start to come up that you didn't know before. You know, it's not just marriages, but friendships can be like this, too. You have a best friend. You're like, hey, we're moving to the same town. Let's move in together. And it's great. And all of of a sudden, they don't do any of their chores. You know, you're washing their dishes all the time. And all of a sudden, it becomes a bit of a headache. 
You know, I think this is actually true for us in the church. You, know, you come into it, it's new, it's fresh, a new community, you like it, you love it. Um, you're enamored with it, a, a community that's devoted to the same things that you are. Uh, a new community that has the potential for beauty. And then all of a sudden, inevitably, conflict happens. People in the church, believe it or not, sin. Maybe they sin against you directly. Maybe you're just witnessing their sin towards other people. The warts begin to show. And, uh, and so, you know, eventually after a while of that, you'd say, I'm gonna try a different church. And uh, maybe this one just isn't doing it right. And then what happens? It's the same thing. And this isn't to say that all problems in, in the church are created equally or there aren't good reasons to move from one community to the next. I think you should all be here at St. Andrews, for, for instance. <laughs> uh, but... You know, maybe you came to St. Andrews at the very beginning, expecting it uh, to, to be different, to become something or do something that maybe it hasn't become or done yet. You know, we're, if you're new with us, we're a, we're a young church. We're, only, we're not even three years old. And so there's still all this potential of like, what could we become? What are the things we might do in the future? What are the ministries we may or may not start? And then maybe those things that you thought it was going to become don't happen. And maybe I've let you down. Maybe someone else has. And you can start to wonder, is this really what I want for my life? A community that, that can't get along, conflict, strife, is this really worth it? Is the church with all its struggles and for honest weirdness, is it worth it? Is it worth my time? Is it worth my effort? You know, maybe, you know, maybe we're in the back of our minds. We're also thinking, does God wonder that sometimes too? Is he going to scrap this project and try something new? You know, and, and these struggles that we have with the church, with its strength, with its viability, is it going to endure these struggles are not new to us, are they? This is, this is a struggle that's always been with his people throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And as we've just kind of begun walking through Revelation, I think, I think we've seen that, uh, maybe not in the same manner of which I've just proposed, but at least in general, this is an active question for the church. Will it endure? You know, if you're visiting with us this morning, the, the, the last couple of sermons we've been going through this text, and I spent, uh, uh, the last sermon I did on this text, I, I went through 9 through 16 in great detail. So I'm not going to get uh, into the weeds in 9 through 16 this morning, but it's a helpful setup for this next section that we're, we're going to dive into. But one of the things we've been talking about is how the church is getting utterly beat up on all sides. They call it tribulations here. They're going through an incredible tribulation. And in the letters that, that follow this section, these seven letters that go to the seven churches, um, we find that the church is struggling amidst per being persecuted, struggling to turn to other places for love, for hope, for meaning in life, struggling with fear. Maybe they're wondering, is this really God's plan for his people that they suffer so much? Is this really what it looks like to win, to be on that winning team? Because it doesn't feel like it. When you're getting beaten up and bruised, when your friends are getting hung on crosses and lit on fire to be torches at someone's party, it's a real struggle. This is no small tribulation that the early church faced. And here, this, this will be kind of our last of our introduction sermons before next week we're kind of jumping into the, uh, the seven letters uh, here. Um, you know, what we're going to find here is we're going we're gonna to see and spend some time thinking about Jesus' first words that are written in the book of Revelation. His first words that he speaks to John. And, you know, remember, Revelation is this book. Revelation, the word, means to unveil. It's an unveiling where, where Jesus unveils himself to his church, his bride. 
And in this unveiling this morning, in his first words, I think we're going to be reminded of two deeply important truths. One, that, that, that the church is actually the center of God's mission on this earth. The church is the center of God's mission on the earth. If you want purpose and meaning, it's found here. God is not giving up on this project. He is, he is taking bows to this project, so to speak. He's covenanted with this project. And secondly, I think we're going to see that Jesus is the center of that church, leading her to victory, guaranteeing her victory, which means nothing can keep this project that is the church from succeeding. And my hope is that uh, as we walk through these two truths, that it renews your confidence and your commitment to this project that is the church. Not because she is perfect. It doesn't take long to know that that's not true, not even close, but because Christ is in her midst perfecting her. Um, and so we're going to talk just two points this morning. First, the church is the center of God's mission on earth. And second, that Christ is at the center of the church, leading her to victory. So first, the church is the center of God's mission on earth. You know, the, the first part of this scene that, that we touched on a, a couple weeks ago kind of sets this up for us. We see this in verse 12 with John. Uh, he hears this voice and he turns. He says, he, he turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. So the first thing John sees as he turns in this vision is these lampstands. And in verse 20, the end of the section we read, tells us that the lampstands represent the church. And so from the very beginning, we see that this vision, this unveiling of God's purposes in the world begins with the church. This is where Christ is focused. This, he's committed to her and seeing her succeed. That's why we see the son of man is actually in the midst. It says, and in the midst of the lampstands is one like a son of man. So this picture of Jesus in the midst of these lampstands, like, like a priest in the midst of the temple, tending to the flame, trimming the wick, refilling the oil so it doesn't go out, so the flames doesn't go out. And last year, we actually focused on, on, on mostly on, on what this says about who Jesus was and his work amongst us as people, that he is the great prophet, the great priest, and the great king. And that kind of vision of all these different aspects and attributes of Jesus in that passage show us those profound truths. And, and this morning, I think what we're going to find is, is, is we're going to focus on what it says about the church that is at the center of God's mission on earth and, and Jesus' commitment to bringing heaven to earth through his people at the church. I think we're going to see this commitment here in two specific ways I want to point out. First is that God commissions leaders to guide her. We see the church as the center of God's mission on earth as he commissions leaders to guide her. We see this beginning in verse 17. He says, when I saw him, this is John speaking, the apostle John, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. And he says a bunch of amazing things that we'll get to later. Don't want to spoil it for you. Uh, and, uh, and then he says in verse 19, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. And it's this, uh, what we see here is, is this commissioning of John. Right, Jesus begins to speak to John to show him a vision. John begins to describe what he sees. And then John, seeing this, it says he falls as if dead because the majesty of, of Christ is in front of him. But Jesus touches him and commissions him for a work. Uh, this is actually almost like what happens when we 
when we prepare pastors for ministry, when we actually lay hands on officers in our church, our elders and deacons uh, to prepare them for the work. This is what we do. They, they kneel before us and we actually, the, the hands get laid on them and they get commissioned for the work that's ahead of them. And he's commissioning him here that he writes what he sees. And not just for himself, but it says he's supposed to send it to the seven stars in, this, in the lampstands, which we see here. And, and the stars and the lampstands represent the messengers of the church, right? the angels of the church. And following this, we get to read that, that these letters, these next seven letters are actually written to the angels of the church. So John is commissioned to write this vision down and to share it with the seven angels over the seven churches. So question for us is, well, who are these seven angels? Well, the word that we translate as angel uh, in our Bibles is a word that simply means messenger. Uh, and so the question then is, is he talking about heavenly messengers or is he talking about earthly messengers here in this passage? And when you look at the, the seven letters that follow, you know, what you notice is, you know, they're not immediately addressed to the churches themselves, but they all begin, and to the angel of the church in Sardis, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum. So he's initially writing to the angels uh, of these churches. Um, and then in each of the letter, I think we, we see that there's both encouragement and condemnation for sin. He commends them for their faithfulness and then he also calls out specific sins in each of these churches. And, uh, and it, so it kind of begs the question, well, if he's talking about heavenly angels, can heavenly angels actually sin and repent and be restored? Well, no, they, they can't. Jesus didn't die for angels. He died for humans. And so it creates an interesting problem if we see um, these letters being written to heavenly angels as in the immediate context. I think, I think what this is telling us is he's writing to earthly messengers. He's writing to those who are the leaders of the church, to the pastors, the bishops, and the different people who led the church. Now, this is kind of an aside. It's a point of personal privilege. I will say it doesn't mean that there aren't angels in our midst. Hebrews 12 tells us there's innumerable angels here gather when we gather in the name of the Lord. So I think there are angels here. I actually think there's angels actually assigned to specific churches to guide and, and to gu help aid and guide us. I think that's true. But I, uh, but I, I think it seems that here that the focus of these letters is that it's, it's being written to commissioned leaders of the church that are being addressed. So here we find Jesus right in the midst of his church and to his people tending her by tending to the leaders of the church. So that the leaders of the church would lead the rest of the congregation to faithfulness so that they might be a light to the world. Now maybe this sounds like a strange way for me to show you that God is committed to his church and wants it to be the center of his mission, especially when there's no shortage of leaders in the church who do the opposite of speaking God's word to the people. Right? There's no shortage of, of, of examples of ministers who minister for selfish gain. And maybe you've actually been in places like this and you've been hurt by places like this in the past. But I do wanna point out a truth for you, is that I think that there are far more pastors doing good work, doing faithful work, than pastors doing bad work. I think that there are far more pastors doing good and faithful and unseen work around this world than there are pastors doing it for, un, for, for selfish gain. Uh, although the, the faithful pastors at small churches around the world, they don't, they don't make the headlines, they don't make the news, um, God is using faithful ministers to continue to grow his church. And this is true because the church has never been bigger than it is today. This is the largest the church has ever been in the history of the world. And in 100 years, I'm gonna be able to say the same thing. 
And 100 years after that, I'm gonna be able to say the same thing. The church grows. The church grows because God gives her faithful leaders. Of course, there's always gonna be unfaithful leaders in her midst. And they will always get the headline, just like the news. Bad news will always get the headline. You'll think the world's on fire, we're all gonna die. You're not, it's gonna be fine. The world's okay. It's okay, crazy at times, but it's okay. It's, it's all right, God, God knows what's happening. Same is true for the pastors in the church. There's more faithful churches than unfaithful churches, for, um, unfaithful pastors. For instance, you know, there's actually two giants in our Presbyterian tradition that died recently, both a guy down south named Harry Reeder. You maybe don't know who he is. He was a giant. Uh, and also Tim Keller. And maybe you've heard of these men. Maybe you haven't. But I can almost guarantee you that our church would not have been planted, nor thousands of churches around the world, without the work of those two men. And I don't know that I'm actually being hyperbolic in saying thousands uh, when I speak of them and their work. Because God commissioned them, as he commissions many leaders in the church, to help establish new churches, to grow leaders, to grow the church around the world. Not just using the extraordinary leaders and churches, but using the very ordinary ones, like St. Andrews, like myself, laboring in towns no one's ever heard of. I mean, the only thing people know about Yakima is there was a, a bike rack or whatever that might be named after our town. And uh, he does this so that his people remain strong and faithful, that they expand and grow, passing on the truths from one generation to the next. So the first way God shows us that the church is the center of his mission is that he actually commissions leaders to guide and govern her, because she can't do it on her own. She needs leaders to guide and govern her, to propel her forward, and so he sends her leaders so that, she might, that her light remains strong, passing on the apostolic faith. And secondly, I think he shows us that the church is the, the center of his mission by comforting, comforting her in the midst of her suffering. God comforts her in the midst of her suffering. You know, when the church goes through trials, our God does not abandon us. He does not retreat. He does not surrender. But he is the one that's there in the midst comforting us when we're afraid. Remember, this vision comes to a church that is suffering many tribulations. The other, the other week, we talked about the historic tribulations that they were facing, stuck between these two worlds, being killed for the faith, losing family ties for converting to Christianity from Judaism and following Jesus. Even in the public square, they had a hard time getting work because much of the, the Mason Guild work that the, the people in the church were doing was building idols, and they refused to build idols, and so they would lose their jobs. Their tribulations were not small. They were being hit on every side. And what are the first words out of Jesus' mouth to this people? Suffering in ways that we could probably only imagine. This book that's written to unveil himself to his people to comfort them. What's his first words? Here we see it. The end of verse 17. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. Fear not. Seems like a trite thing to say to a people suffering like they are suffering. How am I not supposed to fear in the midst of this? They're losing their lives and their livelihoods. If I'm honest, those are my greatest fears that I die, that I, I lose all ability to have a livelihood. How can I not fear facing that? Verse 17 to 18, again, he says, Fear not, I am the first. And the last and the living one, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. This is a wild statement about Jesus. This is kind of the second wild statement we get in this first uh, chapter. 
Because Jesus is the first and the last, because he holds the keys to death in Hades, Jesus is the I am, right? This is kind of a burning bush type of moment. Remember when Moses was at the side of the burning bush and he, he fell down and God declared that, his, that, he, that I am the I am, I am Yahweh, right? Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh, the creator of heaven and earth. Jesus is the ancient one who is building his eternal kingdom. He's the beginning and the end. He has the first and the last word. He is the eternal one. We need not fear. This is powerful. Though death might come, and it will come for us one day. Though suffering might come, and suffering will come for you one day. Jesus holds life in his hands. And because he is in our midst, he is there comforting us, strengthening us for the, for the life before us. Because not even death and suffering can stop the growth of the church. I can say that because death didn't stop Jesus himself. And because that is true, death doesn't stop the mission of the church either. You know, what did the, do you remember what the apostles did in, in, in Acts when they were thrown into prison? Did they whine and complain? Did they, did they throw their hands up in the air and say, God, where are you? This is so, you're so mean for doing this. No, they rejoiced. They rejoiced because it, it gave them a chance to identify with the sufferings of Christ. You know, our suffering, our death doesn't squash the church. It doesn't stop the church. In fact, it, it actually does the opposite. In death, you know, you become the mustard seed that gets planted in the ground that grows and gives birth to fruit beyond imagination. There is no plan B for God. There is no scrapping this project. No matter her struggles, no matter her warts, no matter her flaws, this is the plan from A to Z. Because the church is the center of this mission. He gives her leaders to help prune and guide, uh, guide this work. He gives her comfort and strength, speaking truth to her, reminding her of who she is. Now, maybe you're here this morning, you're like, man, that sounds great, but I kind of wish there was a plan B, because I, maybe I could come up with some, maybe some modifications, some things to do this a little bit cleaner, God. You know, maybe in your life, instead of experiencing church like I'm describing, this life-giving, this beautiful thing with, with leaders that, that guide and govern well, maybe, uh, maybe you find the, the opposite. Maybe you've experienced tragedy, abuse, life-sucking events from the church. We don't have to look far to see churches with these kind of problems whether from internal, you know, fighting and strife inside, or external, from the outside coming to us. You know, our headlines are racked with pastors who have failed to perform their duties, uh, who use powers to abuse rather than serve, right? There are plenty of congregations who give themselves over to helplessness and, and fear in the midst of trials and tribulations. This isn't just our modern-day problem. Again, this is a problem from day one in the church. You know, one of my uh, favorite pet peeves a soapbox for a second, is when people say things like, you know, we just want the church to be like the early church. I think I know what people mean by that. They're thinking Acts 2.42, but I want to be like, you know, you mean the church where people were sleeping with their family members? You want it to be like that early church? Or how about the early church where everyone's getting drunk before communion? That's the church you want, <laughs> you want it to be like. Um, you know, the, the church has always struggled with its calling. It has never done it perfectly. And even when the Acts 2.42, when they're sharing everything, it's this beautiful vision, not long after that, you get a couple of people who withheld and lied and got killed. So this has always been a struggle for the church. It has always struggled with its leaders too. Paul had to confront the apostle Peter in his pride. So how can we say that, the, that this is the center of God's mission when it seems to be so corruptible and so fragile? The church seems so fragile, doesn't it? 
when it causes pain, when it's the very reason that some will say they don't believe in Jesus. You probably heard people say, I'd be a Christian if it wasn't for the Christians, right? So how can we say that this is the center of his mission? It's simply because of he who is active in the center of the church. This is the second thing we see here is that Christ is at the center of the church leading her to victory. Christ is at the center of the church leading her to victory. Listen, the church's success does not rest on my shoulders or your shoulders or any other church's shoulders, but on the very shoulders of Christ and their very capable shoulders. Again, we see this here, verse 12 to 13. You see, he is the one who's in the midst of the lampstands, like the Son of Man, speaking of Jesus. And then you see 17 through 18. Again, I'm going to read this to you, where Jesus says, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. You know, if the center of the church was a, a mere human, even the best of us humans, and if Jesus gave the, the, the church to the humans and just kind of left us on our own, like, you guys good? All right, I'm out. Uh, the church indeed would have fallen apart ages ago. You, you can't help hold this thing together. Maybe, maybe the church would still be around a little bit today, but it'd be like kind of one of those weird cults that you sometimes forget exists until you get a phone call or something. Um, but that's not what Jesus did. He is the man who's in the center of the church. It says he is the first and the last. He is the one who is alive. He, he who died but rose again and conquered death. If anything, with all the issues the church has had in her history, the fact that she is still alive and thriving and growing in the world actually shows us and proves this truth to us. That Jesus is at her center. And he will not uh, let her be stopped in her mission to bring heaven on earth through his people. The one who is at our center is the one who cannot be defeated. The first and the last. He is the eternal one. He has the final word. He lives outside of time and yet inhabits time. He cannot be constrained or controlled and not even death can stop him. Jesus is the living one. Many have come and gone. Pastors and churches have come and gone. Kings and kingdoms have have come and gone, but Christ is here, building his kingdom, building his church, tending to her flames. And under his care, the church continues to grow. And it's never been larger than it is today. This is what it does. The church grows and expands because Christ is in the midst of her, growing her. Nothing will stop it. Nothing can thwart, not even the gates of hell can prevail because who holds the keys to the gates of hell? Jesus himself has unlocked that door. That doesn't mean she doesn't sometimes struggle. The church has gone through many deaths in her past, but she always rises again just like Christ rose. And the same spirit that brought Jesus back from the dead is a spirit of life that flows through your veins. The spirit of God flows in your veins by faith. This is why the church cannot die. No matter how corrupt she gets, Jesus will raise up more people like Athanasius and Luther to bring her back. Jesus Christ is victorious of the grave and so his church is victorious over the grave. But as Christ claimed to be, Kling was vindicated in his resurrection, so Christ vindicates his church in her suffering. Our sufferings are not our end, but in Christ they become our beginning. 
Every death is a, is a resurrection story waiting to happen. I mean, this is the, the, the story of the church, isn't it? Persecutions don't kill it, but they actually cause it to grow all the more. The more you strike it, the stronger it gets. We're, we're the rock that gets struck and water comes out, giving life to the nations, not because we're strong, but because he who in us has conquered the world. He has conquered death and hell. This is true of the first century church. This is true for us today. You know, the leaders in countries like North Korea and China will try to stop Christianity by sending pastors to prisons. You know what happens? Those pastors begin to preach the gospel to the other prisoners. And then people in prison begin to convert and revival happens. It cannot be stopped, friends. The church cannot fail because Jesus is in her center. Jesus is the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega, which means he has come with his word. Where he's the one who in his word has started the history of all things in Genesis and he is the one who has the final word at the end, bringing heaven to earth. He is not the God who is surprised by the events on this earth, but he holds them together. This is what the first century church needed to hear. That their suffering wasn't in vain, it wasn't for nothing, but that their work was laying the foundation of the work for the rest of history. And this emboldened the early church to hold fast, knowing that Christ was with them, that he was and he is and he is to come. And this is what you and I need to be reminded of as well. So what does this mean for us? Well, if, if this is true, that the church is the center of the mission of God and Jesus is at her center guaranteeing her victory, I think the obvious thing is this should give us profound hope and comfort that Jesus is on his throne. That even though, even when we, we can't see him working, he is. Even, even when we are suffering, our suffering isn't in vain because Christ has gone before us and he has risen from the dead. I think also this should make us, as a people, an extremely committed people. God is calling you to the greatest work ever as he's calling you to the church. So the plea to, for me to you is to commit to her. Like, like Christ committed to her by giving your life to her. Christ gave his life for her, so I would challenge you to not hold back from the church. Listen, I understand the church may actually bring you harm. Uh, but listen, it wasn't the outsiders who killed Jesus. <laughs> it was the insiders. It was the leaders of his people who killed Jesus. And so sometimes we will suffer from each other inside too. And I don't want to minimize that suffering. Or to excuse it, we should call out sin and root it out wherever we find it. But even when we suffer from each other, even in the church, it can actually give us more cause for rejoicing because it's another opportunity to identify with Christ. I think lastly, this should make us a globally-minded church. So often when we're frustrated with the state of the church, it's because we're so focused on maybe what's happening right here in our own neighborhood, in our own time, in the own Western world, uh, and it becomes from the, from, from the state of the church in our own country. But listen, the church is bigger than our own country, thank God. The church is a global endeavor. And friends, the church is thriving and growing in much of the world. We need to lift our eyes from ourselves sometimes. America is not the focal point of human history. God and his people are. And God is growing his people around the world. Rejoice in this profound truth. Jesus is building his kingdom. It, it will not fail. Inevitably, you know, if, if you've ever seen a time travel scenario in a show or movie, they'll go back in time and the smart ones, you know what they do? Is they start 
betting money on different horse races and games because they know the outcome, right? And then they get uh, ridiculously wealthy. That's what I would do if I could travel back in time. Uh, I'd do other things, I'm sure, too, but at least I would do that. And, uh, and I think this is a great analogy for us. Friends, we know the end of the story. We know the end of time. Bet on the church. It is the most sure thing there has ever been in this world. Let's spend our lives helping her to grow and flourish that she might multiply in all the world, that she might be a light in the darkness wherever she finds herself. Amen. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. I pray that your word would strengthen us that it would bind us together, that it would give us hope to commit our lives to the things of you. Strengthen our hearts, our will, our resolve, that we would endure to the end. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen.